0: In John 13, um, it's amazing. The gospel, according to John, just amazing. These last 13, 14, 15, these last, these, these few chapters in here, um, uh, uh, mostly is Jesus' teaching and the experiences um, following Jesus' life directly prior to the cross. And so it's kind of like that moment, like, if you, had, if you had one week to live, what would you do, you know? Um, You'd go sky, die. No, whatever. No. What would you do? Jen said no. Um, what would you do you have one week? And so this is kind of like, wow, Jesus has one week left on earth. And then he's going to lay down his life um, and usher in his, his kingdom. And so this teaching in this is very important, what he was doing. And there was a lot that happened at what we now know as the Last Supper, right? He called his all his disciples, disciples into the upper room. They had a meal together. They celebrated the Passover. And, um, during this meal, he taught, um, he taught a lot and he taught not just through words, but he taught with his actions and his posture and the things that he did. And so this is, this scripture is picking up, uh, the, the, the evening meal was in progress. It it, it says, and verse three, it says that Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and he had come from God and was returning to God. So, that he recognized his authority, who he was, what was happening, uh, that his power came from God, his identity was found in God, uh, the Father. And, and 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 so what he was doing was a response to that. It wasn't just, um, hey, this is a good idea. Why don't I do this and teach everybody a lesson, right? There was something going on in this big story, this arc from the beginning of of time until, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, the story of God that we've spent so much time discussing, that he's doing something intentional here, and and this is a part of it. It says, so here's what he did, verse 4. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So, it, pretty customary in those days because everybody, you know, they, didn't, they weren't kicking Air Jordans around or, or, you know, nice boots. They, most likely some kind of sandal or something like that. It's very customary if you came into someone's home, uh, especially if they had a servant or a bond servant in that, in that home, that they would wash your feet um, just actually as to keep the place clean, one. And two, it was very sim- symbolic um of for that guest to extend them a welcome um, and so that was something that uh, was commonly done so that wasn't that odd um, but in the middle of this meal jesus did it um, and he began to wash his uh disciples feet um and then drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around him and he came to peter who said lord are you going to wash my feet And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. So there's a lot of symbolism here. We could dig into this scripture. A lot of scholars believe that um, him, the word that is used for taking off his outer Uh, garment his robe taking that out was off was actually the the a weird word that wouldn't have been used in this context it was actually the same word used as he as he poured out his life on the cross same word used Um, and then when he uh, took up the later when he took up his garments and put them back on was the same word used to describe the resurrection so there's a lot of symbolism here. And, and the cleansing part, you know, there's a lot of symbolism of the washing of sins and the repentance and things like that. Of the things that he provided, there's a lot of symbolism. It's a little more intuitive for us to, to catch that. But what sometimes we miss is who he became in that moment. Not just what he did, but who he was in that moment. Okay? Um, the posture that he took with even those who were his students, so Jesus answered, verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And so do we know that Judas was in the room. And in fact, Scripture, right before we started reading it, it spoke about that the, that this, that, uh, that the devil had already uh, provoked Judas, that he was already tempting him to... Uh, had already tempted him into betraying Christ. So he was saying it wasn't just um, that everyone in the room, you know, was clean, um, but he still washed everyone's feet. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, it's the verb that I was talking about, and he returned to his place. I don't know if that was intentional. It probably was as well. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, that word know means perceived. You just you understand. You didn't just hear him. You didn't just see it. But you perceived what was going on. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And that word blessed uh, is used to describe a believer who's... who's that really, it means fortunate. That we're able to receive that it's a blessing that for us to know... And to hear this message. What do you find significant about this moment? What are the things, quickly, uh, what are the things that you find significant about this moment? The humility of Christ. You know, I've watched a few feet washing ceremonies before. And they were done symbolically. I think it's interesting we look at scripture and we're trying to figure out which one is literal and which one is not. Not many of us here has washed other people's feet, right? We haven't done that. So we understand there's a heart to it, but there's a humility to it. I thought it was so interesting when I saw that feet washing was it was humility of the, of the leader or the pastor or whomever was washing the feet. But you know what posture it struck instantly in the heart of the person being washed? Humility in them. Like they were on the verge of embarrassment. Like, why? you're washing my feet. It's amazing what that does to the other person. What else? That that he that he may have washed Judas's feet. My my assumption is that he did. Why would he exclude him? I, I think if they would have excluded him in that moment, it would have specific I believe it would have specifically said that, but that's I mean, is that significant? Is that important? That the one who betrayed him, and he knew it. He, scripture tells us in that moment that he knew that was going on. That he still washed his feet as well. That's that's ama- To me, that's amazing. Could I be like, whatever, Judas? What else? Right. It's good. So he was doing inside care there. He was doing. He was making disciples, and he was teaching a way of life that he wanted them to go. Do that, but then there's also this inward care that he was teaching. Not just okay, now go do this everywhere else, but also don't forget about each other. What else? Say that again. Yeah, he removed casts and barriers. He didn't rank people at all, and this is just one thing of of pushing, um, lowering him. We see that with almost every story of Jesus, whether he's having a meal at those who were considered outcasts of the society from the religious world, um, um, to kneeling down and, and riding in the dirt for a woman caught in the adultery, to walking straight through Samaria, to be at the well at a noontime where only the most outcast of women would come, Samaritan women who know self-respecting, anyways, you get it. I love this. I think it's all the things that you said. I think it's the things that stood out to me as symbolic of serving man completely. I think it's symbolic of that he washed even his betrayers' feet. Uh, and I read one commentary saying it's a, also a reflection of his identity. And I'll just read it. They wrote, here's this description of Jesus' identity in relationship to the Father. This knowledge does not simply give Jesus the security to wash the disciples' feet. So he humbled himself, but he wasn't threatened by that. But his, also his sharing in the divine essence, which is what leads him to wash their feet. Like it was his motivation because he understood his identity with the Father. Which is so important for us as we think about how we serve one another and we serve other people. We don't do it for the Father or just for like, look what I'm doing for you. But we do it because we find our identity in him and we're doing it of that identity. There's a, there's a big difference. One of them will just wear you out and destroy you. The other one will, will wear you out as well. <laughs> but, but there's some other promises that come along with that. There's another strength. There's another thing. And so I think it's really important. Um, and I, this is one of the major reasons the world struggles to receive Christ. He came with a new perspective. It was just different than how leaders lead. Especially when we're in the flesh, it's counter-cultural, it's counterintuitive in order to be successful and to lead others. It's, it's counter to our, our desire to rise to the top. Because by the very nature of rising to the top, that means you just put everyone elsewhere below you. So this was a radical new way to live. This was a radical new way to live. And then he said, go and do this kind of stuff, guys. And in fact, what I've been doing is nothing. Wait until you see all the stuff you're going to do. So we've been talking for the last two weeks, and this is the final week, kind of recapping the vision and the heart of A&C. Week one, we talked about it being a place where you can belong. And belonging comes with all kinds of baggage, right? You, you, don't, have to be, uh, you don't have to believe. You don't have to um, get everything straight. You don't have to dress a certain way and, and not do this, 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 and this. That We have to be a place. Somewhere in the world has to exist a place where someone can belong no matter what. And be a safe place for them, as well as it is, guess what, what will then happen, safe place for us to belong and process this God thing. Specifically, what is this Jesus dude all about? It has to be a place where you can belong first. And then second, obviously, our, our, our hope would that God then would reveal his truth, that we would be a part of that. But then also to be a place of, of becoming, a place of learning, where it's a place where as believers we can grow in who Christ was and what that looks like in our lives and our marriages and our families and our workplace and all that stuff. But that it's not just that we're learners and that we're disciples, but that we take on a new posture of saying we are becoming. That we are not arrived, that we never get to the point where we're like, oh, I know so much more about the Bible now than most people, and so you can be like me and you one day when you arrive you can that's just the wrong posture that wasn't the posture that we're all learning we never stop learning that we are constantly growing we're constantly becoming all that god desires for us to become as a businessman as a dad as a husband or wife as a big brother or little sister we are becoming as a friend as a coworker we're becoming and then the last one that we wanted to talk about today is serving. Belonging, learning, serving. A place where we can serve. Where we can actually have something in our lives that is bigger than us. That is not just what benefits us back. And that we believe if we take scripture that somehow if we do that semi-properly, that we will then end up gaining this full life that Jesus talks about. But it's really tricky to learn how to do that. Right? So I'm we'll to talk about learning today for a little bit what it means, I mean serving today a little bit, what it means to serve. And I'm not going to talk about the orphan crisis in the world today. And I'm not going to talk about other justice issues and human trafficking and all that stuff. We talk about that all the time. I want to kind of peel it back and talk about the idea of serving, a biblical servanthood, what that means and why we do it. So that could be the lens then in which we view all of those things, okay? And so let's look at that first. And what I want to say first is I think there's four points in your bulletin and It's pretty they're not incredibly profound things, but I think they're worth discussing. The first one is that serving represents a new kind of leading. A new kind of leading. If, if in any way, you know, Jesus was, was super divergent from the crowd, it was in the way that he led. He led by not just example, but he led by serving. That was his posture. Okay? A few years ago, I asked a friend, incredibly successful businessman, I mean, incredibly successful. Um, I was considering all the, specifically started, I was considering the different leadership styles in churches, the different kind of pastors that are out there. Because um, I was really confused by most of them, just to be honest with you. I was confused in myself as a leader. Like, what is, that, what is that really supposed to look like, right? And um, so I'm reading all kinds of leadership books. And, and I got so sick of reading Christian leadership stuff. Um, and, and, um, actually it's a while back that I began, I, I ran across a guy named Jim Collins wrote Good to Great. You ever read Good to Great? For those of you in the business world. Um, so it's a really good, it's a really good book, but I was asking my friend, I said, you see all these trends in leadership. You have the high power, uh, a CEO that just, is over everyone and just dominates everyone and you it's my way or the highway you have all these different trends over the years of corporate leadership that seemed to work at least for a season and if you really study the history of that that it seemed like they they only worked for a season there wasn't necessarily one leadership style that was just in your face going wow that guy's an amazing leader that lasted more than a decade And I asked my friend, I said, is there there any leadership styles or anything that seems to be a common thread? You look for a hundred years back as a leader, what style or what whatever just really seemed uh, to endure. And the only uh, thing he could come to, he says, you know, the ones that I see for 40, 50 years of amazing leadership is when an organization or a company understands a servant leadership heart. Um, Jim Collins uh, talks about in Good to Great four levels of leadership as you're developing yourself. Level one is that you're just a highly capable individual, level two is you become a contributing. Member to a team of other capable individuals. Level three, you become a comp- competent manager of these highly capable uh, uh, individuals. And at level four, you become just this effective leader. Then he spoke about this new level, this level five. And this is what my friend was talking about. He says Level five leaders operate first and foremost with a genuine humility and a burning passion for the mission over themselves. In a secular world, stepping up to level five requires a special blend of personal humility and professional will. The capacity to channel our personal ambitions and capabilities into a larger cause or mission. I'm looking at Jesus. He was the ultimate level five leader. He epitomized servant leadership. We have to learn the ability to see beyond our immediate selves for the body and to champion what is ever best for the mission. The, um, here's what happens, because in that moment, this leader's concern is for the bigger thing. It's not just for what's best for them. And the problem is, is if we don't move towards something, towards that, what happens is we become so consumed with our thing and our life and our hopes and our dreams and, our, and everything. Not only does that keep us from being a part of something else, but then that's your decision, right? That's our decision. But how it impacts everyone else then is that when something happens, we project the way we view things onto other people. And we assume when they come to us that they have a selfish motive in mind instead of maybe their motive is bigger or less selfish, okay? And so it can be destructive in relationships in many different ways. And so here is Jesus teaching a new kind of leadership And then he's going to launch this thing called the Bride of Christ, the church, into an existence. And he says, this is how I want it to look. And then if we fail to do that, what happens is that organization will be known as maybe an organization that is judgmental, that likes to argue a lot and fight with each other and and always posturing and trying to get what they want. And unfortunately, a lot of people would say that describes the church today. So I can't help but wonder... If somehow in here is the key to a new posture with the church that would change the, the, the literal um, the atmosphere, the spirit, the life of the church. That if we learn truly to submit one another for even for the cause, for the bigger cause, and and guess what, one another is the cause, the bride, it's the church, right? But in order for us to do that, first of all, we have to to be able to develop a bigger kingdom theology. That's hard for us to understand. How does my church matter and impact other churches in this city? We have to learn to care about that. How, How does what I do, even outside of the church, impact how other people view this thing that we believe so deeply in? How does how I live my life impact so this... This kingdom theology that there's a bigger way than just certainly bigger than just Sunday morning. But there's this bigger thing that Jesus is doing. We have to develop our kingdom theology and we have to develop our local view, our view of the local body. What how that does uh, impact other. All right. So it requires us to get the bigger mission for us to be committed to the body, for us to be willing to submit to one another, all of us. I just think it works in the world because God designed it to work. I just do. Whenever you look at something that just really works, an attitude or a heart or a posture, just really works. When someone comes to you and just their posture and their gentleness and their humility and their genuine concern for you and you feel it and you know it, the way that makes you feel inside, like super safe and awesome, right? That's because God designed us to respond that way to that kind of posture, And then when we begin to learn and love, to desire that, then we begin to offer that to others. That's what it means to learn to love mercy. All right. So by God's design, and I wrote this down, anything outside of that, we see the organization eventually implode from within. As I was considering this I, I, I found myself in james 4 uh we just study the book of james right verse 1 what causes fights and quarrels among you don't they come from your desires that battle within you you desire but you don't have so you kill you covet but you cannot give what you want so you quarrel and you fight you do not have because you do not ask god and when you ask you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on yourself He just explains it right there. Doesn't that make sense? It doesn't work. It ends up in misery. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? I like Paul. Paul's writing. He talks about spiritual milk and spiritual food. Forever I grew up thinking spiritual food was the word of God, but Scripture is very clear that spiritual milk is the word, spiritual food is the life. Thank you. Yes. No. And in this life, we're invited to do what? Arrive and be awesome? No. We're, we're invited to become. To have a safe place that we could drop our attitudes and our arrogance, even our ignorance, at the door. And we could just take a humble posture with one another and with God to say, yeah, I, I am not there. I think about what I did yesterday. I'm not there. I, help me to become who you want me to be. That's a new way to lead. And we lead one another. All right? Is that just one point? Serving represents a new kind of leading. Number two, serving is an important part of our, of our learning. Surfing is an important part of our becoming. Almost every time someone was confused or wanted to ask Jesus about the kingdom or how do I inherit the kingdom or how do I do this, he always, just said, he always turned them. He confronted their self, and I think it was a gut check. Maybe it wasn't even so much as how they delivered on that, but maybe their first response to how I feel about that sometimes is a really good gut check on where we really are. Um, but it's a super, super important part of our learning. I've shared this story in our partner class. I don't remember if I've shared I may have shared it 5,000 times, but we've always been a church that served. And we always, you know, I've always tried to wrestle with this thing that before we started A and C, the main thing that God just said was serve the poor. I know what he was doing now. I know that he was tricking me, right? He was tricking me into changing my heart and my mind, how I view things and people and my own stuff and all this stuff. But there was a moment at the beginning of this journey where I just went out on a uh, truck run with my good friend, Alan Graham, who runs Mobile Loaves and Fishes. And we pulled in. It was one of the first times I ever did it. And we pulled into this day rate Hotel where uh, these, these – uh, it was just a really bad hotel. And um, I, I asked him, you know, why are we going in here? I thought we were serving the homeless. He's like, well, these are the working poor. And I'm like, okay, explain what that means. And he said, well, these are the people – who dad will go work for $90 a day and pay $90 a night for this hotel because it's the only one big enough to for his family to stay in. And it's just this terrible cycle. And actually landlords many times take advantage of the working poor and they're just stuck in this terrible cycle and they don't have anything. So we come in here and provide, you know, food or, you know, the basic things that we can. And so we're rolling in there and I'm still kind of checking it out, going, you know, judging the teenagers in the corner and all that stuff. And, and, um, I know I know I've shared this story before, but this is huge, huge a huge moment for me. We pull in there, and I'm still trying to process everything. And people are coming and getting food. Most of them feeling seeming fairly ungrateful, just kind of whatever. And one guy comes in, and he's just crying. And as you want some food? Yeah, give him some food. You want some socks? Yeah. You want some some toothpaste? Yeah. You want some soap? You want this blanket? Yeah, and just taking everything more and more and more. Finally he said he said I have three kids, and so I just I just need this stuff. And I said man, that's okay. And the more we gave him, the more he began to to, to weep. And so I just asked him, I said, what's, you know, what's going on? You know, I can't help but notice you're crying. And he said, well, and he told me, he said, I, I've worked, you know, make 90 bucks a day, pay 90 bucks a night for a hotel. And he said, and um, he said, my kids haven't eaten in three days. Like, a, like a, they haven't had a meal in three days. And he said, I was just leaning on the window sill, looking out and I was praying. And I said, God, if you're real, will you feed my kids? He said, right when I said amen, I looked up and you guys pulled in. And I was just, ah, oh, just crushed my heart. i was just thinking, man. Right, I, I backed out and I asked my friend, Alan, I, I, I said, man, if that, if that happened once a year, that would be, that would, change, that would change my perspective for the year. That's all I would need. That would be my fuel for the next year, you know, to keep my perspective. And I asked him, I said, how many, how many times that happened to you? And he just looked back and he said, every single time. And I remember that moment, God just said, capture what you're feeling right now and help other people feel it. So as a pastor, I heard God very clearly say, what you're feeling right now, help other people feel that. And I don't know any other way to do that, except for to say, hey, go on a truck run. Go meet some homeless folks or some people who can't give you anything back. And that's evolved over the years, okay? But that is the, that is the heart of, of why we do what we do. And we've learned over the years that it has to be about our discipleship. It has to be about a holistic gospel. It has to be about learning to love mercy and seeking a biblical justice or we do it for the wrong reasons. But it's still a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle to perform. It's a struggle. We start feeling guilty when we let it get out of place. Serving is an important part of our learning. I think it does something that um, nothing else does. But we also know serving can become an idol. And many times we swing so far to the other side, not only does it become an idol, but we start thinking, why isn't everyone like me? I'm serving like crazy, and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And we forget the grace to extend to people, leading people where they are, not where we wish they were. And we forget it took us 30, 40 years to get there. And we want every, and we start looking down our noses in judgment, and we no longer create a posture of belonging, or a posture of being learners together or becoming together. We lose all that, right? So we swing all the way to the other side. That's just as bad. So thinking about the learning. Serving is an important part of our learning. scripture from Hebrews 5. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear because you no longer even try to understand. In fact, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. You need milk, not food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching. Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. By constant use, then, we apply this into our lives, and when we have the right perspective on it, we're able to see, am I, is this healthy or is this unhealthy? Is this about me or is this about God? Has this become an idol to me? Have I swung too far to one side? It's that wisdom, as God changes us, then for we have to go back and reapply that, not just celebrate where we've arrived. All right? All right. And this scripture gives us permission, if we're confused on the issue, we need to go back to the word and find its place. We need to go back to the word and find its place. So we still need... The milk, we need to go back and we need to be reacquainted with the teaching. Number three, on serving. We are equally called to serve those on the margins and those on the inside. I don't know how else to say that. We're equally called. I think it works. It's easier for us to want to serve one another. And so we probably have to lead outside like 10 times as hard for us to even land in the middle. But you need to know Jesus never expressed one over the other. When he talked to specific, very self-centered people and he knew it, he swung all the way and said, you just need to sell everything and go do this. All right? But to know those truths and those instructions and contexts are very important. We're equally called to serve those on the margins and those on the inside. We serve based on two things in in my heart, our church, what we're trying to do. One is we serve based on need. Mother Teresa taught there's three kinds of need in every community, that there's physical need in every community, poverty, etc., there's emotional relational need in every kind of community. Your neighbor, in every community dealing with emotional relational poverty. And there's spiritual need. We know that. It's absolutely everywhere. So we want to we want to engage where there is need. No need is greater. Obviously, we know the spiritual need ultimately, the, the cross heals that, but where people are, their felt needs, they're all significant. And then we serve based on proximity. Wherever you are, you are. That's where you are, right? And it makes no sense for us not to serve where we are. But then also where we're going, a bigger picture as well. So when we talk about constantly, love your neighbor, serve your city. We know Jesus' illustration about the Good Samaritan. When uh, he, Jesus asked the Teeth of the Law, who was questioning him about it, he said, who is this man's neighbor? And he said, the man who served him, the man who helped him, was his neighbor. And so we know that the definition of neighbor is a whole lot bigger than just the guy next door. All right? Last thought, serving is meant to inform a new way of living. Inform, not define. Like we are not defined by that, but it informs. Serving ends up informing and changing the way we live. It does both, but there's a different perspective to look at it that ultimately we might be transformed and view everyone differently, including one another. Two scriptures on want to read in Jesus' last moments, and I will uh, we'll pray. We'll close out with communion and um, a little bit of worship. John 13, verse 34 through 35. This is again after, in this moment, at the Last Supper. This is actually the main scripture why we named this church Austin New Church. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He doesn't say, if you've got the coolest Christian t-shirt on, everyone will know that you're my disciple. Or if you show up to church every Sunday and do everything exactly right, everyone is going to know that you're my disciple He doesn't say, check every box and everyone will know you're my disciple. He's saying that how we treat one another, that's how they'll know if you're truly there. And then in John 15, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is his heart, his reasoning. He knows it's a better life. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Let's pray.